Let's talk about um, Jerusalem as sacred space. Um, one of the great ironies of Jerusalem is that it's the center of the world for three major faiths. I mean, it really is a big deal to a lot of people. Uh, you know, people are willing to live for this city and people are willing to die for this city. But why is it such a big city? Why is Jerusalem such a big deal? It shouldn't be. For all intents and purposes, it shouldn't be that big of a city. For one, um, it doesn't sit on any major trade route. So here you can see um, a map of the, of the Middle East, Mediterranean Sea, Cyprus, Italy, Greece, everything back over there. You've got a couple of major trade routes, one called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And it comes across up here through Damascus, through northern Israel, through the um, Jezreel Valley, and then down the coast, through the Gaza Strip, modern-day Gaza Strip, and into Egypt. Keep in mind, Israel, this little strip of land, why is everybody fighting over it? It basically connects four major land masses, right? It connects Europe over there, to Asia up here, to Africa down there, to India from the southeast here. Um, you have a massive thing, and I, and I put desert here so you can go there. This is a big desert. There is a, a road, a trade route through there, uh, through the oasis here. But for the most part, you've got to be very well skilled. You can watch documentaries on National Geographic to see about how long it takes these guys and how long it, to, to make this trek. But most people followed a route, uh, and all development of all ancient cities happened in the Fertile Crescent, the Fertile Crescent, right? And it's here from Babylon, modern-day Baghdad, uh, up between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, see where it's green, and then back down into Egypt. So basically, if you wanted to go from Europe to Africa, and you, can, you weren't going to sail right on land, or Europe to India, or, or Africa to Asia, you're, you can't come this way. So you're going to make your way right up this route here. So whoever owns and controls that landmass there can charge a lot of taxes and tariffs, um, can, uh, you know, can basically control a lot of wealth. People are always going through there to trade. Um, so there's one major route here called the Via Maris. There's one on the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is the Jordan, this is the Dead Sea here. Lowest place on the face of the earth, by the way, 1,200, 1,300 feet below sea level. Lowest place on the face of the earth. Um, you're, you are the last generation to see it. It'll be gone in four years. There's so much development going on in the north, northern part of Israel and the West Bank that they're siphoning off all the water. The Dead Sea is shrinking from the south towards the north. The whole southern end of this now is a salt mine. It's a salt flats. You're the last generation to see the Dead Sea. Unless they do one of these plans where they cut up through the bottom, they might cut a channel and bring the water back in. But you guys are the last ones to see it. So there are two major routes, and Jerusalem's right in between. There's no trade route. You know, Jerusalem doesn't sit on a major trade route, which is one bad strike against you, against them at least. Um, here's, a, here's another look at it. This is inverted, right? The arrow is always going to point to the north. Here again, Canaan, or the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, down to the Dead Sea. Pardon me, uh, Canaan here, down to the Dead Sea, and then uh, down to the Gulf. And you can see that there's a lot of hills here, mountains here, a lot of hills on the other side. The Jordan Valley is actually a rift valley. It's an earthquake fault, like the San Andreas we have here. And they're due, just like we are. They're due for a big one. Um, and of course, when it happens, everyone will claim prophecy and all that stuff. <laughs> That's what happens. So if you're going to go, you're not going to go across the desert. So what you're going to do is you're going to make your way, and you're either going to come just outside of these mountains and valleys and things here, and make your way down and cross down here by the Gulf, or you're going to make your way across over here and take this nice, easy plane. You're not going to go here to Jerusalem. It's in the hills, it's out of the way, it's a backwater city, and it was for most of its, for most of its uh, history. It was just this backwater place. In fact, let's look, uh, let's look at Google Earth. Now, how many of you are familiar with Google Earth? You should. If you're not, you, you should know this program. Um, there's digital cultural mapping projects that you can do through tech that you, that you need to sign up for if you like doing this kind of stuff. Credit for doing Google Earth, things like that. So we're flying here into, let me do the one to make 
section here. There we go. So this is Jerusalem. Can you guys see this okay? Or do I need to kill these lamps? Don't make out. <laughs> All right, a little better. The city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, can be broken up into four quadrants or quarters, if you will. Um, on the eastern side, well, I may call it five quarters, if you want, but the fifth quarter being the Temple Mount on the rock. The south uh, east corner is the Jewish corner. The southwest corner is the uh, Armenian quarter. The northwest corner is the Christian quarter, and by Christian, they mean Orthodox, Greek and uh, Eastern Orthodox. And of course, the, the, a large chunk of it, the northeast corner is the Muslim or the Islamic quarter. And, and this is pretty, it's pretty rough, but it's, but it's pretty accurate. You can basically divide the old city into four quarters, okay? Uh, and then a fifth quarter over here, over time, being um, the, 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 I mean, pardon me, the, the Temple Mount, the Quran. Um, there are eight gates surrounding Jerusalem, okay? Starting up here in the north, the Damascus Gate, guess where it leads to? Damascus in the north, right. And then there's the new gate. Funny story about the new gate. You notice there's no Catholic quarter in the old city of Jerusalem. No Catholic quarter, right? Um, all the Catholic stuff is just outside the old city over here. And they felt left out, so they wanted their own gate, so they punched a hole and made their own gate. <laughs> oh, right. So the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which we'll talk a lot more about during this class, uh, this is where Jesus is said to be buried, the Holy Sepulcher. And so quick and easy access through the new gate right into the Holy Sepulchre. Instead of having to go through the Islamic quarter Damascus gate or the Jewish quarter Jaffa gate, they just punched a hole in the um, Over here on the west side, the Jaffa gate leading to Jaffa in west on the coast, towards the west. Okay? And this is the main entrance uh, in West Jerusalem. West Jerusalem, by the way, we'll talk about a lot, talk, talk about these a lot. Uh, West Jerusalem is basically Jewish Jerusalem, and East Jerusalem is Palestinian or Muslim Jerusalem. Not all Muslim. A lot of Palestinians, 10%, are Christian, believe it or not. Uh, basically, East and West, West, just think West Jewish and East uh, Arab or uh, Palestinian. Um, this is the, the Jaffa Gate here. A lot of stories we'll talk about. They have a whole lecture on gates later on. Not Bill Gates, Jaffa Gates. Uh, down here to the south, the Zion Gate, guess where it leads to? Mount Zion, which we'll talk more about here. Also on the south, the Dung Gate. Yes, you're reading that properly. The Dung Gate. Yes, question? <coughs> yeah, there were actually three sets of walls. They kept building bigger and bigger walls. This is the, this is the old... The, the old wall here. Obviously, uh, this here, this is the original one, and it, and it kept growing out. We'll talk more about the walls, the different walls of Jerusalem when we talk about um, the Holy Sepulchre. Because a lot of people said that this couldn't be um, the tomb of Jesus because it's inside the wall. No good Jew would build a cemetery inside the wall of the city. But at the time, the old wall was came in to the, to the east of it. So it, it was outside of the city at the time of Jesus. Yeah. On the outermost wall today, yes. I, I think. Some of them are on the first wall. But you'll, you'll see. This, this, I'm just showing you the main gates today, and then I'll show you. And Baha'i has a very good chart showing you the expansions of the walls over time. Different rulers expanded the walls. But, oh, I don't want to go to a meeting. All right. Um, Zion Gate here to Mount Zion. By the way, Mount Zion moves around over time. We'll talk about this later. I'm just introducing some things. Um, Mount Zion used to be here, and now it's here. So in the 8th century BCE, and you say, I want to go to Mount Zion, the donkey driver would take you here. <coughs> but if you arrive at Ben Gurion Airport today, and you say, I want to go to Mount Zion, they'll take you here. So the mountains can shift, but that's the way things happen in sacred cities. Right? Um, Dung Gate here, that's why they call it the Dung Gate. Yeah, it's the trash. This is the trash. It leads down here. Uh, to where they used to throw the trash. And so they call it the Dung Gate. At least that's the story. That's the story there. Uh, this cuts in just very near. You can actually drive through this gate. This is, you can drive through uh, Zion Gate as well, but I wouldn't recommend it. How did, did we wreck a car in Zion Gate once? We almost got it stuck. Yeah, it was like a Hyundai Getz. It was very small. 
so we still take it. This one is the main, the buses will go through there. And it's the main route to the plaza of the Western Wall. Then you've got the Golden Gate here, which is walled up. The Golden Gate used to be uh, a, a hole in the wall that popped up onto the Temple Mount. We'll talk more about the Temple Mount later. So the Golden Gate was walled up in an attempt to keep the Messiah from walking through the gates. Remember, the Messiah is said in multiple traditions to come from the east, right? Which way does Moroni point up there on the Mormon Temple on Santa Monica? You know, the angel, the big golden angel is up there. He always, the Messiahs always come from the east. So if the Messiah is supposed to come from the east and he's supposed to go through this gate and take his throne on, on Mount Zion, how do you stop the Messiah from doing that? One ruler thought, well, just wall up the fence. Forgetting that Messiahs can raise from the dead and walk through walls. So the Golden Gate, you can see from the Mount of Olives, uh, but it's walled up. Okay, so you won't, you won't be going through it anytime soon. Um, then you've got the Lion's Gate or St. Stephen's Gate on the northeast end. Oh, pardon me, on the, on the north, uh, yes, on the eastern wall, northern side. And then you've got a gate called Herod's Gate. Herod, the King Herod. Herod's Gate. And all of those except for the Golden Gate you can go through today. Now there's another gate here called the Holda Gate. The Holda Gate is inside the wall, but it's a gate just like the Golden Gate into the Temple Mount. So you would walk basically under the Temple Mount, walk up, and then you pop up on top of the Temple Mount, you would go worship in the Temple. Um, it too has been walled off, but there's still a tunnel under there. The reason that you or I or anybody will never ever go in there is that tunnel goes right under the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Okay? And you'll just learn as a rule of thumb, you never want anybody um, walking underneath your holy site. Because it's too easy to put explosives in there and blow things up. So nobody goes underneath anything. Every time they dig a new tunnel in Israel or Palestine, um, everybody complains. No tunnels. They don't like it. So archaeologists digging around the city, they don't like uh, because we might doing something devious, even though we just want to preserve it. Um, they don't really like that. The other thing you need to know, besides the eight gates and the four quarters, plus the fifth quarter there, are the valleys that surround Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always attacked all throughout history from the north. Why? There's no power protecting it. On the west, on the south, and on the east, Jerusalem is, is protected by three very steep valleys. Okay. On the east side here in the blue is the Hinnom, pardon me, is the Kidron Valley. Kidron Valley. Mount of Olives here, uh, the, the eastern hill here, City of David. Let's we'll refer to the City of David. It's this little finger that sticks down just south of the Temple Mount. This is, this is referred to as the City of David. Kidron Valley here. Kidron Valley is famous for a number of reasons, but for one, um, the coronation in ancient Israel was to take the king, on, put him on the royal donkey. You know, now we have that, you know, the Pope has his Pope mobile and the president has those bulletproof things that they fly all over the world. You put the king on the royal donkey, you march him down the Kidron Valley to the Gihon Spring, and you anoint him there. You, you anoint your ancient kings. You, you do something sacred to them. We have a, a inauguration, right? The, the president stands up there and takes the oath administered by the Chief Justice who messes up the oath, or forgets the oath, uh, they did this anointing. That's how they anointed kings. Kidron Valley. Okay. In the center, you have this valley called the Tarpeen Valley, or the Cheesemakers Valley. Not the Cheese Cutters Valley, the Cheesemakers Valley. No, not a tip, not a nothing. Good, you're a sophisticated class. Cheesemakers Valley, Tarpeen Valley, Cheesemakers. It's, it's filled in a lot today. There's a lot of houses built uh, into this area now. Um, and in the third valley is this one here. It comes down the east side and, and part of the west side and sweeps along to the south. Anybody guess on this one? The Hinnom, Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley. We'll talk more about the Hinnom Valley a little later. Guy. Gai is the word in Hebrew for uh, valley. Hinnom. So this would be the, or Gai Ben Hinnom, the son of Hinnom. The Gai Hinnom, say it really fast ten times. Gai Hinnom, Gai Hinnom, Gai Hinnom, Gai Hinnom, Gai Hinnom. This is where we get the word Gehenna. 
So if you've ever walked uh, along this western side of Jerusalem, or if you've walked down the Kinnom Valley, you have been to hell. Because in Greek it's Gehenna, and that's where the New Testament gets its word for hell, from this valley here, Gehenna. Long tradition on it, we'll talk about it later, obviously this is just an introduction, but um, <coughs> lots of traditions, one, you know, one tradition, this is where they used to burn their trash, and so it was always on fire, it always smelled like sulfur, if you've ever been to a dump or a place where they burn trash, uh, you know, always decaying, always sulfur smelling, always worms, you know, there, decomposing, just not, an ask, not a nice place to be. And in Canaanite traditions, according to the Hebrew Bible, this is where the Canaanite kings would sacrifice their children. And if you, if you read Jeremiah, maybe some of the Israelite kings were sacrificing their children as well. So, if this is a place where children were sacrificed, then it would make sense, well, let's just not build there, we'll just use it as the dump. And it became known as the Gehenom, the, the Valley of Hinnom, which is makes sense why when Jesus is talking about, you know, what's hell like? Well, it's down there. It smells like sulfur, the worm, it's always rotten, the worm never dies, and that becomes the imagery for hell as hell evolves or develops. Any questions about this here? Any questions? Now, why do I want to give you an overview of Jerusalem right now? Um, because I want to show you, so we did we did these four here, right? Just in case you're asking. Muslim quarter, Jewish quarter, Christian quarter, and Armenian quarter, Kidron, Hinnom, and Tyrophian Valley. Now, why do I show you this? Uh, we looked at all the gates. Um, what do we know about major cities, big cities? Like Jerusalem is one of these centers of the earth, at least to three faiths, probably, I don't know, a good half of the, of the world. This is the center of the universe, right? But it's not, it really shouldn't be, as far as cities go. What do we know about all ancient or even modern major cities? What do they all have? What are some, what are some common traits? Yeah. Defense. Defense. What else? Body of water. Water, fresh water. Okay, let's look. Let's look here. Let me give you some uh, comparative sites here. We'll fly around the earth to New York. What do we see with New York? Right? It's on a couple of rivers, right? Freshwater rivers. Uh, we'll go ahead and say the name of this city, even though I promise we never say it. Uh, it's basically flat. But by having two rivers, not only do you get natural fresh water coming in, but it's also defensible, right? You've got water on all sides, so you, it's a small thing. So, so this city, it makes sense for a city to develop here, the biggest, you know, the biggest city in the world, somewhere. Are you? How about UCLA? How about Los Angeles on the other end? What do we have over here? Just a big basin, right? You have all kinds of water coming not now from an aqueduct, right? But coming from these mountains, coming down, it's defensible. Like you've got this big mountain ridge kind of blocking it off. You ever try to drive the grapevine to go up to my hometown, Fresno? Oh, what a pain, right? And you're driving up there. It's, it's well defended. It's kind of this flat area. It's got all kinds of natural resources. It's got a port. New York has a port, right? So it can do trade for economics. It's got fresh water. It's well defensible. Let's look at some others. Uh, how about, um, here's a good one. How about Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. is kind of an exception. When we talk about D.C., when we talk about King David choosing Jerusalem to be the capital, what's, what's D.C.? Anybody been to D.C.? What is it, essentially? A swamp. So why not make New York our capital? Or why not make Charleston? or some other established city. Why did they go out and choose a brand new, fresh piece of swamp to be the capital of this new country? Yeah. Wasn't it because the North and South were arguing about where it should be, so they made a compromise in the middle of it? Yeah. Keep that in mind. So the, the answer is, um, you know, what's North and what's South? So they chose something kind of right in the middle, and they chose some god-awful piece of swamp land that no one had ever laid claim to, at least no one coming in from some other country. Obviously, there are Native Americans around. But as you know from this country's history, they just kind of pushed them aside and did what they wanted to do. And I'll, I'll let you comment on, on that in another class. Um, but basically, they chose it because it was in the middle. It was in the middle. It was neutral. Keep that in mind when we come back to Jerusalem. Um, Paris, I mean, we can go through all of these, right? Paris, 
sits on a river, is well defended. London sits on a river, has a port access, well defended. Uh, how about Baghdad? Baghdad's in the middle of the desert, right? But where is it? Between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Let me show you one more here. How about Cairo? This is a great example on Google Earth. Because Google Earth now shows green versus desert. What do we know about Cairo? Yeah, I mean, it sits right there in the middle of the desert, but when, this, when the Nile floods and it floods the delta, you've got all the water, you can do agriculture, you've got a port so you can trade. All of these major cities have things in common. They're easily defended or, or, or capable of being defended, fresh water, agriculture, uh, trade, ports, economic development. And now we'll go back to Port Jerusalem. <coughs> accidentally click my house. So here we're coming in to Jerusalem once again, and we are in the middle of the hills. The Fresno of the Middle East. <laughs> Actually, it's Bethlehem. The major route is over there and over here. The lowest point on the face of the earth with salt water four or five times saltier than the ocean. You can't drink it. Okay, you've got a river way over here, but it runs into the desert, right? So why, 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 why did Jerusalem become this major powerhouse city? So that's one of the things we're going to be looking at in this class. Um, we talked about the Kidron, Hinnom, and Tyropean. You should already have this. We already looked at this picture, correct? Here again, this is why. This is why no one ever bothered to conquer, and I was conquered, keep in mind. But this is why Jerusalem, one reason why Jerusalem was able to become kind of a, a developed city is because it sits in the middle of these hills, and it's not on a major trade route, it's not a major economic power. So if you're a conquering king and you want to take over major cities that are going to be at an advantage to you, right, where are you going to sack? You're going to take the coast of port cities, right? You're going to take uh, Tyre and Sidon, you're going to take Jaffa, you're going to take uh, you know, Egypt, at least you're going to try. You're going to take these major trading posts. You're not going to climb up into the hills and try to attack something with very few natural resources, no fresh water, and a bunch of people that live up in the hills. Look at that. I mean, have you ever, has anybody driven through Jerusalem? Anybody tried to drive to Jerusalem? Is it lost? I mean, it, it's hills up and down. Let me show you some more pictures. I just want you to get a, an idea for the terrain. It's, it, it's a city built on a bunch of hills, out in, literally out in the middle of nowhere. Here's a great example from the Hinnom Valley looking toward Mount Zion. It's just straight up. They, they can't even build. It's so steep they can't even build on a lot of these hills. Jagged cliffs. I mean, they tried. They put things on top of everything. But these are, these are you know, your first pictures of Jerusalem here. Look at this one from Silwan, the Drum Valley. I mean, they just built out this whole side of the cliff. Good luck driving to your, and you thought walking around this campus was bad. <laughs> Good luck getting your place here. They didn't even bother to build much over here. So this is why Jerusalem's never conquered from the south, east, or west. You know, you're not going to march your army and your battering rams and your artillery. You're going to come in from the north. And that's why, oh, by the way, the Damascus Gate, the biggest, heaviest, tallest walls are in the north to protect the city from all the, the conquests that were coming. Now, here's something neat. Remember, you can always do this. Here's the way I remember Jerusalem. Take your hand, do the spot thing, turn it upside down, and look at it. Jerusalem. Okay. Temple Mount. Temple Mount here. City of David, just to the south. Right? And then over here, the western hill. And then you've got your three valleys, right? What's this valley out here? Hinnom, right? Hell. Hinnom Valley. What's this one up the middle? that separates the western hill from the eastern hill? Tyropean or cheesemakers? What's this one over here? Kidron. Okay, so this is, so when you see people in Jerusalem walking around like this, they're not, they're not Star Trek East, right? They're not Trekkers, they're actually trying to point it. Here's the Mount of Olives, here's um, the western hill, here's the Temple Mount here, Mount Zion. Can you see that all right? Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, which will, will become the Temple Mount, um, is not quite as tall as the Mount of Olives or the Western Hill for that matter. 
So Psalm 125, 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. That psalm makes sense. Because Jerusalem, this city is the old, the old city and the city of David here, which is old Mount Zion, not new Mount Zion. New Mount Zion is the western hill now. But old Mount Zion um, is surrounded by these mountains. So that's a pretty psalm, right? As, as, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so God surrounds his people. He kind of takes care of them. It's a protected area. It's very well protected. Isaiah 2, 2 says, In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of all mountains and shall be raised above the hills, which makes sense if it's not already the highest mountain. So there's this prophecy in Isaiah that says, you know, when the Messiah, when the end comes, when God comes, in the end times, this, this, this hill, this holy hill will be raised up as the highest mountain on the earth. But for now, it's not. And it's kind of out of the way, and all of the, with very few exceptions, all the people who tried to conquer this place just kind of, eh, they went after the north. They went after Samaria to the north. They went after Israel, not Judah, after the split. Okay? So they don't, they don't pay much attention to Jerusalem. So one is, is its topography. Jerusalem is out of the way, surrounded by mountains and valleys. It's hard to attack. So because there's really nothing there for you, there's no fresh water, there's no seaport, there's no, this is a great essay question, by the way. There's no, big star. Um, there's no uh, fresh water, there's no seaport. There is fresh water, by the way. We'll, we'll talk about the Gihon Spring in a second. That's not a lot. It's not a lot. Um, by the way, Jerusalem, they're, they're fighting over how we're going to, between the Palestinians and the Israelis today, how we're going to settle the Jerusalem question. It won't be about anything. It won't be about settlements. It'll be about water. I know everybody talks about the settlements and settling in East Jerusalem and all that, It'll be about water. Trust me. Trust me. So for the same reason that people in Fresno yeah. hate people in Los Angeles because we think LA people steal our water. All the water comes from not LA, right? It comes from up north in the mountain. Uh, the same thing. Water is the big issue in Jerusalem. There are other issues, but water is the big um, let's look at Let's look at a famous quote about <coughs> routes, trade routes. This is from G.A. Smith. Jerusalem bears tokens of civic promise. Throughout Judea, these are lacking. She has no harbors, no river, no trunk road, no convenient market for nations on either side. In their commerce with each other, these pass by Judea, finding their emporiums in the cities of Philistia or, as of old, at Petra or Basra, or the east of the Jordan. Gaza has outdone Hebron as the port of the desert. Jerusalem is no match for Shechem in fertility or convenience of sight. The whole plateau stands aloof, waterless, on the road to nowhere. It's a great little, great little uh, comment about it, right? There are no natural conditions of a great city, and yet it was here that she arose, and uh, who more than Athens and more than Rome taught the nation civic justice, gave her name to the ideal city of striving, and on and on and on. Basically, it has none, in, none of the characteristics of, an, of another major city, and yet here it is. The question we're going to look at in this class is why. Why did this city, which has basically not, shouldn't have become a major city, why did it become at the center of the earth to you know, three, three major things? I'm going to do one thing very quickly to make sure I'm free. I'm going to need somebody's power. I'm sorry, I forgot my power. Yeah, it's the magnet time, right? Because so I would hate to run out of uh, power and then send you guys all home. No. This probably won't make the final cut of the video. The class question. It might. Alright, there we go. And I don't want to remind you. But note to self. Change time of meeting. Okay. Um, the last thing is, is water. We talked about we, we said we talked about water. There is no major freshwater area. They do have this one little dinky spring, a couple of others, but they get home spring. The Gahon Spring is the main, uh, basically the main spring. By the way, in Hebrew, what's the word for spring? Anybody know? Anybody speak Hebrew? No. Huh? Uh, no, not Gihon, no. Good, good, good thinking. No. We'll do that a lot. Ein. Ein. It's also the word uh, for your eye. Why? Yeah, this is where the ground cries. Right? 
So that's where the water is. Right? This is where the water comes from. You're not supposed to spit. Right? This is where the water comes from, out of your eye. So that's where the ground is. So this is where the ground pushes up fresh water. And wherever there's a spring, in the desert or in the mountains, that's where you're going to find an oasis or a city or a small city or something. So they have Ayn Rogel, the salt pool, the Hezekiah's tunnel. But the Gahom Spring is really the only water source for this area. All the water coming into Jerusalem today comes from the north. And like I said, it's a big political issue. Um, the Gahom Spring, remember this here? Temple Mount up here, City of David, just to the south. The Gahom Spring, uh, spring sits just to the east of it. Okay, so it's a natural spring, and it fills up with water. The problem was, how do you get the water into the city? Especially, this is down low, and the, and the Temple Mount's up high, so the water's below you, outside the wall. How do you do it? What they did, and we'll read about this, is they built a tunnel, okay, from the Gihon Spring. They, they created a channel underground, and then they created a shaft. They dug a shaft, one shaft. It's called one shaft, good thing to know. Hezekiah's tunnel, good thing to know. We'll show you some better pictures of it later. Down so they could, so they could bring the water up. So the spring could fill up the shaft. They could bring water up into the city. So you should know Warren shaft, which brings water up. According to the, to the Bible, uh, this is how they conquered the city. They actually snuck into the water system and ran up the water system. It's like Shawshank, but in reverse. Remember Shawshank? When he's climbing out the sewer, these guys are going up through the water system. Water. Water is always understood to be sacred. 
So too in, in ancient times, right? Ju uh, pardon me, Genesis 2, 11 through 14 talks about a river issues from this Garden of Eden. We'll talk about it in a little bit. Uh, to water the garden. So God created a garden in the story, and uh, this, this, uh, this river uh, waters it and divides and becomes four branches. And the name of the second river is Gihon, one that winds through the whole of the land of Cush. Now, two of the other rivers are the Tigris and the Euphrates. The other one's the Pishon and then Gihon. We don't know where the Pishon and the Gihon are. We know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are. So if the Garden of Eden sits at some confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates, one would imagine that it would be over by modern Baghdad if it's a, if it's a historical place. Um, but as we'll see, since it mentions the Gihon, you're going to see the, the Garden of Eden itself shift. This is a common theme we're going to see in this class. Sacred places are like magnets. They attract traditions. Write it down. Sacred places are like magnets. They attract different traditions. So even though you've got a Garden of Eden talking about the Tigris and Euphrates, you're going to actually see that um, the Garden of Eden is going to be dragged towards Jerusalem. So much so that Jerusalem will come to be known as the Garden of Eden. There will be traditions like Adam was buried in Jerusalem. How is that possible? I'll show you. They, they attract traditions. Ezekiel 47, uh, there's a prophet named Ezekiel, and he talks about an angel led me back to the entrance of the temple, and I found that water was issuing from below the platform of the temple. This water, he told me, runs out to the eastern region and flows into the Arba, and when it comes to the sea, the sea is foul, blah, 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 blah. So basically, there was a tradition that there was water coming out from under the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? Maybe the Gehom Spring, maybe a reference to the Gehom, we don't know. Revelation 22 talks about New Jerusalem, right? Revelation is a, a, book, a Christian book in the New Testament, the Christian New Testament. Uh, Christians refer to the Hebrew Bible as the Old Testament. So in the Christian New Testament, in the book of Revelation, by the way, the first person who says Revelations gets dropped. There's no S on the name of the book. It's the book of Revelation. <laughs> no S. It's a P of mine. You hear people talk about Revelation 6. <laughs> Revelation 22, 1 through 2, says, The angel showed me, he's talking about this great vision of a new Jerusalem. Right? It's going to be lowered down from heaven. And he says, Show me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God himself, right? And the lamb through the middle of the street. Keep in mind that Revelation is an apocalypse. Apocalypse, the answer to the question of what is apocalypse? Apocalypse is a style of writing. Okay? The eschaton is the end times, right? Um, uh, apocalypse literally means to to tear back, to peel back. You guys have seen the movie The Matrix? It's that, it's that concept. What you see in reality isn't real. You have to rip back and look behind, and that's what's really going on back in the Matrix type thing, or outside of the Matrix. Apocalyptic writing is a style of writing that's proclaiming to do that, but it uses very vivid imagery. You're always going to see like 12 horns and 13 eyes, and, and it's going to be bright as the sun and white as wool, and, and these are all images. It's, it's poetry trying to describe something. Because if you're if you're hating the Roman government and you're writing something about I hate, you, you don't write I hate Rome I hate Rome I hate Caesar, right? Because if you get caught with that, you're dead, right? So what you do is, I hate the beast with the seven horns and the thirteen eyes who ravages the, the children of the lamb. And then people look at you like you're nuts, right? But another Christian would read that and go, oh yeah, we don't like Rome either. Right? And that's how it works. So horns are symbols of power, right? And eyes are symbol of, of wisdom or of presence or knowledge. And so you talk about horns and eyes, it's not, it's not literal, uh, it's poetic things as bright as the sun, and white as... And you get in Revelation, you also get in the second half of Daniel, and you get it in Ezekiel. Ezekiel does a lot of this. Ezekiel, I think, was nuts, by the way, but that's another class. Ezekiel will have some problems. Um, Revelation is an apocalypse, and so you're going to talk about this river, right? A, a sacred river. And in the Quran, 
by a description of paradise in the Quran, a parable of the garden, which is those guarding uh, against evil, are promised. Therein are rivers of water that do not alter, and rivers of milk, the taste whereof does not change, rivers of drink delicious to those who drink, and rivers of honey clarified for them uh, uh, therein are all fruits and protection from their Lord. So in all the different faith traditions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, you've got water being sacred, holy, and you've got Jerusalem at its center, at least at one point. Yes? Um, so if water is sacred, is it always considered good? Because it talks about foul water in that one, and at the beginning it says water is chaos. Water is usually considered necessary. Um, tame water, fresh water, right? Salt water, or, or chaotic water, a storm on the sea, actually had its own god, right? The, the word for sea, Yam, in Hebrew, is also the name of a god in Canaanite. Yam is a sea god. And in early, this is another class, but in early uh, in Genesis theology, uh, in Genesis uh, literature, you, you kind of get this God that's creating the earth, taming the chaotic waters, right? Because there was something there at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was already there, right? What was it? And the earth was tofu vabohu. What's that mean? Formless and void. Right? There was something there, but it was chaotic. Right? And the, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of it, the deep. And then he separated the waters from the land, and he, he separated the firmament. There was already something there. If you, if, you, if you read it in Hebrew, now I know that a lot of people believe that God created the earth out of nothing, but that's not in the Hebrew. That's not what it says. It says, it says there was something there, but he came and he brought order to the chaotic water. So there is this idea of God bringing order to chaotic water, but once he makes it orderly water, or good water, or fresh water, then it's essential for life. And you'll see a lot of this. Uh, Egypt, and during the Exodus, you see this great song of the sea that, that uh, Moses sings, talking about horse and rider he's thrown to the sea. It's the chaotic water that collapses and, and gets the Egyptians, but the Israelites are able to, to walk across. You, you'll see this theme recurring in the Hebrew Bible. So why is Jerusalem the center of the earth? Here's a nice, nice medieval map. 1581 BCE, Asia, Europe, Africa, and Jerusalem. <laughs> right? And then waters. All around. And then America is, you know, who cares? <laughs> this is how people see Jerusalem. Why this? When it, it's not supposed to be a successful city. One, uh, the answer is, and, and why you're reading Eliada, um, sacred space. There's a difference between physical or profane space, common space, and sacred space. Okay? I don't care of what religion you are or if you are of a religion, there's something about walking into a church or walking into a mosque or walking into a synagogue or a temple of some sort, some kind of building of worship um, that even if you're not a person of faith, you're at least, you should be, most people are, somewhat respectful. <coughs> Right? So you go to a mosque, even if you're not Muslim, you take off your shoes. Right? You, 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 you might put on a cloak. You might cover your shoulders. If you ever try to visit a mosque, those will be requirements. You cover your shoulders, you cover your legs, you take off your shoes. Right? There's something about those spaces that are sacred. Same thing with what else? What else is a very common sacred space? Rhymes with cemetery. <laughs> so cemeteries are kind of sacred places. Why? They're dead. Right? Unless you believe in ghosts and things, they're not going to come back and eat you, right? They're dead. Unless you unless a zombie land, but they're not going to work. They're dead. They're gone. People are dead. And yet, for some reason, we have this thing about cemeteries. Unless you go to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in the summer and watch movies. Have you done that? Oh, do that. Oh, do that. It's so much fun. They, they take on this big wall and they project uh, movies. Like classic movies, Bride of Frankenstein, Muppet movies, stuff like that. And you can go out there with a picnic basket and sit there in the cemetery and watch the movies. You're not sitting on tombs. It's just one area that has to be. <laughs> but you walk through all the tombs and then you have a, uh, it's a great, in the summer, Hollywood Forever Cemetery, go do it, you'll see me there. <laughs> okay. Three things about sacred space we need to know. One, it needs to be constructed. Sacred spaces are constructed to set them off from profane, common places. I use the word profane meaning common. Okay. 
two, um, they need to be consecrated. They need to be deemed or officially uh, acknowledged as sacred. If there's some kind of ceremony or a rite of passage or something's done to make this new space that you've constructed sacred. And then you get to Eliades, and this will be on the exam, the concept of axis mundi. What does axis mundi mean? Center, axis, and, and what? This is the idea. It's the center of the world because it's a what? It's some kind of pillar to the heavens. Okay? So it's the center of the earth because it's the point on earth that connects with the heavens, that connects with the divine realm. And there are several of them, depending on which faith you are. There's lots of these different types of holy mountains, right? Just about every tradition, every faith has them. And this is the idea behind a lot of our, our modern literature, right? And even ancient literature. Um, where are you closest to God? On top of a mountain, right? You're, you're on top of anybody. Unless you climb the mountain to see what you can see or whatever, and you're up there. And I don't know about you, but you just feel like, man, you're on top of the earth. You're closer to God. Whereas when we feel down or depressed, what do we what do we talk about? Maybe I'm being down in the rut, or as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Oh. Right? We get this, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not the mountain of the shadow of death, but it's always the valley. For some reason, when you're farther away from the sky, it's farther away from God, because the idea is that God lives in the sky. And when you're up on the mountain, you're closer to God. And so a lot of these sacred places are on the tops of mountains because the idea in the evolution and the history of religion is that it's closer to the gods up on a mountain. Or at least you try to construct some kind of artificial height. Look at Catholic churches. Look at, look at cathedrals. Right? What do they try to get you to do? Up, up high, up high. Right? Where do you put a lot of monasteries? Up, you want to put them up on the tops of the mountain. So we're going to look very quickly at the construction of sacred space, the consecration of it, and the center of the world in relationship to Jerusalem. The first and the classic story is the Tower of Babel. Right? These guys are out kind of in the desert. And we get the story in Genesis 11 that says that the whole earth had one language. This is a myth, by the way. Let me give you another, uh, give me, give me another word. Etiology. With an E. E-T-I. O-L-O-G-Y, I might have an E in there, E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. What's an etiology? It's a story that tries to explain the origin of something. Right? Daddy, what's, the, what's that ring? What's that big colorful thing? Ah, let me tell you the story. Once upon a time, there was no rain. But then God flooded the earth. But there was this guy named Noah, and he built an ark, and blah, 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 blah. And God put this rainbow, and that's where the rainbows come from. I don't, you know, you don't tell your kids, or in pre-science, you don't talk about refraction of light through prisms and water droplets. <laughs> it's a pre, this is a pre-scientific world. They're not making things up. This, they understood this to be the truth, right? To them, this was the truth. But we're talking about a pre-scientific time. They didn't know about water refraction and this kind of thing. So they told stories to, to tell the, the origins of natural phenomena. If you've ever been to the southern end of the Dead Sea, the salt is so, uh, so um, the water is so saline, there's so much uh, salt in the water, that it will actually climb up and create pillars of salt, about, about as big as I am, right? And the, the salt will just run up. It's not capillary action, it's not a Bernoulli force, but it's some other physical thing. And the water actually goes up and brings the salt with it, and the, the, the water evaporates, and you actually get these, these um, salt pillars. Where do those salt pillars come from? Let me tell you a story. One time, God destroyed two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, don't look back. His wife of Lot looked back and turned him into a pillar of salt, and all those out things out there are people. <laughs> now you go cut them in half, and there's no bones in them. It's just salt. But that's the story. It's called an etiology. It's any kind of story that explains the origin of a natural, natural phenomenon. Eddie, why is the sky making all that loud noise when it rains and lightning? I remember the first time my daughter asked me that. Dad, where does the rain come from? Because God is crying. Why is God crying? I don't know, but it's probably something you did. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> she doesn't care. 
trying to explain why people speak different languages, right? You have the story in the Bible that, all, that there was an Adam and there was an Eve, and we assume that they spoke the same language. And how did we get from Adam and Eve to all these different languages? Well, let me tell you a story. Now, the whole earth at one point did have one language, the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had some brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Um, and then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. So here these people, with one language, say, ooh, let's build a city. And let's, the idea is we want to be up there like the gods. Now the Lord came down, right, according to the story. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortars had built. Basically, they thought they could build a city into the heavens, right? which we think is absurd today. And the Lord said, look, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose uh, to do will now be impossible for them. So at least to God in the story, <laughs> they can do this. Right? Well, we better do something about this. Come let us, this is always fun, for a monotheistic religion and the singular God to always refer to himself in plural. And no, don't say Trinity, because the Trinity isn't around for another two until 200 CE. So there's something else going on. There's another class. Maybe we'll talk about it here. But by the way, you get this in Islam as well. Let us create, let us do, let us do. Um, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them abroad there in the face and scattered them all. And that's how you come to have all these different languages. Change your language. We call it the Tower of Babel. Balal is actually the word, but basically to scatter your speech. So here's a nice etiology of where do foreign languages come from? Ah, let me tell you a story. But what do we note about this? <coughs> they tried to build an artificial platform to bring them closer to the gods, and there is where God came down. So even though God doesn't like what they're doing, according to the story, you see this beginning of this interplay between people trying to reach up to the heavens by building some kind of structure and God meeting them there. Now, he wasn't very nice to them there. God's not always nice when he meets you, you know, on the mountain in these stories. Um, but you have this idea of building a structure and God meeting there. And it becomes an axis mundi. It becomes a, a bridge to the sky. So let's look at another one. Anybody heard the story of Jacob's Ladder? Or heard the Huey Lewis song? Or is it Huey Lewis? No, that's not. Okay, never mind. Um, this is Genesis chapter 28. Jacob then left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones uh, of the place, he put it under his head and laid it down in that place. So he used a stone for a pillow. Is that nice? Um, he then dreamed that there was a ladder set upon the earth. Okay? the top of it reaching to the heaven, and angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This is where we get the idea of Jacob's ladder. Jacob sees it. Now, bear with me. Jacob's lying on his back with a pillow under his head, and in a vision, he sees a ladder reaching up to heaven, and <coughs> angels going up and down on the ladder up to heaven. Now, some people say, obviously, the, the overt idea is um, this is now a, an axis mundi. It's a place where the earth and heaven are meeting and the divine are, and, the, and the human are interacting. Okay? But what a lot of scholars will tell you is that this is a very much a, a fertility story. He's lying on his back. He sees a ladder up into heaven, things going up and down on it. Why do they go down? Bear with me. I know you think this is funny. Bear with me. Why do, they, why do scholars say that? Look at this. Because what does the Lord say to him? It's a fertility blessing, right? And the Lord stood beside him. Right? And he said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of your father, uh, the, uh, Abraham your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. So it's a promise of God giving the land to Jacob here, according to the Hebrew Bible, right? Um, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. I mean, you're going to have lots of kids. And this is why they think that this is also a very sexual story. It's a fertility blessing. Don't believe me? Wait till we talk about circumcision. You guys know circumcision? You guys know I'll explain it. It's, um, 
on, on boys, <laughs> there's a, um, yeah, let me show you a slide. <laughs> but if you think about it, what the circumstances, you're cutting off the foreskin, every male, every Jewish male is supposed to cut off the, why there? Why not, how about just an ear piercing? How about a tattoo? Why that? Because what's the promise? It's a fertility promise, right? Abraham, you will have many children. Your people will be like the dust of the earth. And so if you're going to do a fertility promise, and you're going to make a fertility, you always cut the covenant. Covenant always involves cutting something, right? So that, that's, that's where the fertility comes from. And it's a place where every male will look at every day, for some reason or another, and especially every time they go to, once you guys get married, once you go to actually procreate, that's where the baby, you have to involve, so that's why circumcision is, is there, and not just a piercing in the ear or something. If you gave birth, out of your ear, maybe it would be there. <laughs> so anyways, these are fertility covenants. These are covenants, you know, you don't, there is no heaven and hell in ancient Judaism. Read your Bibles. You read the Hebrew Bible, there's no mention of hell. There's Sheol, it's where you go when you die, but there's no afterlife. Not until late in Second Temple Judaism. Not until very, very late does this concept of an afterlife and a heaven and a hell develop. Early on, you don't see it. How do you live forever in ancient Judaism? Through your offspring, through your children. So you'll always see these promises, not of everlasting life, but you will have many children, and your children will have children, and, and so on and so forth. And if you don't have children, for some reason you're considered cursed. Why? You can't. Your name doesn't live on. Remember the Tower of Babel? What do they want? Let's make a city so our name will be great. Right? What's one of the promises to Abraham? I will give you children, and I will make your name great. Because there's lots of you, the children of Abraham, right? That's how it works. So he's sitting there, he's having a dream. God shows up and he says, I'm going to give you all these children. Know that I'm with you, will keep you forever. Uh, uh, I will do all the things in this place. And Jacob woke up, verse 16, from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? There is none, this is none other than the house of God. How does one say house of God in Hebrew? House is bait. God is El. So you get Bethel, Bethel, right? So Jacob rose up in the morning. What did he do? He was visited by God in his dream, according to the story. And so what did he do? He takes the stone pillow under his head and he stands it up, right? Jacob rose early in the morning. He took the stone, he put it under his head, and he set it up as a pillar. And then he did what? He didn't just construct a sacred space. What did he do? He consecrated the sacred space by pouring oil. What's it? What's the word for to pour oil over something in Hebrew? Anybody know? Mashach, right? Mashach. And you get the word Mashiach. A, 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 a Mashiach is one who is anointed. The anointed one, Mashiach. And we know it today as Messiah. So the, the art of pouring oil over something's head uh, was a nice thing. It's not something that you do on, on April Fool's Day or uh, what's the Indian holiday? It's, is it holy? Yeah. The Indian holiday where you're just dousing each other with paint? It's not like that, right? This, this is a, I mean, that's a, it's supposed to be a, a positive thing, a good thing, unless you're wearing white. Um, um, this is a good thing. They're anointing, they're setting up a stone, making a monument, and they're pouring oil over it to consecrate it. This is a holy spot. In fact, this is the house of God because God visited me in this place. So this is the idea that Eliade is trying to, to flesh out. That Axis Mundi are places where the divine comes down to earth and meets uh, humanity. Uh, let's look at another one. Um, but let's skip this one for now. We'll come back to it. Here's what you should be thinking about when you hear about the Tower of Babel. Don't think about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Okay? Think about the tower, uh, think about the ziggurat. It's not a pyramid, it's a ziggurat. Pyramids are tombs, and they're Egyptian, but they're, they're minor. This is a ziggurat, this is one here, you've got them all over. These are basically high places of worship, they're, they're holy places. So when you think of the Tower of Babel, think of the ziggurat, okay? Now, in Mesopotamian creation stories and myths, you've got a creation story called the Enuma Elish, or Enuma Elish. And in this story, the temple is lowered down from heaven. Basically, God says, no, no, no. I'll take care of building the holy place. Here, you know, they lower it down 
and then people have a place to connect with God. So it comes from the divine down to the, to the human. In the primeval Bible histories, the two creation, there's two creation stories in the Hebrew Bible you're not familiar with. There's a creation story in Genesis 1, and then a couple of other, there's a creation story in Genesis 2, verses 4b through end of chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, humans are created last. All the animals are created first, and humans are created last. And the humans, I mean, man and woman at the same time appear, male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 2, it starts over. It says, before any of the animals were created, God created a single human, called him Adam, and then took a rib from the side, if it's a rib, uh, took something out of the side, and then created a female, Eve, and then you've got Adam and Eve, and then he creates these animals and brings the vines. So you've got two different creation stories, and, and you know, which one do you choose? They just plop them side by side. You had created Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Two different stories, a little different. Um, but anyways, you've got these creation ideas, and he, in chapter 3, he creates a garden to put these people in there. And this is their, uh, uh, their axis mundi. This is where a place, according to Genesis chapter 3, where God walks around and talks with Adam and Eve. So it's, it would be an axis mundi. And you also have, in Genesis chapter 11, we'll look at in a second, if not today, but tomorrow, um, or Tuesday, um, the story of, of Melchizedek, Melchizedek. He's a priest of a town called Salem, supposedly where Jerusalem is today. And uh, Abram goes out, uh, Abram's brother, uh, uncle Lot, nephew or uncle? Nephew. nephew Lot is kidnapped, right? And then uh, Abram goes out to save him. And upon rescue, he passes by Salem, and the, pre uh, pardon, the king of Salem comes out, and he's also the priest of Salem. And he blesses Abram by this God named the God Most High, El Avion. And so I bless you by the, the, God, the name of the God Most High. Um, so you get the story in Salem, Jerusalem. We can see the, so we can see it beginning, right? You're beginning to get these traditions associated with the city of Salem with the high priests and the kings and God showing up, being praised and invoked. Um, and then, of course, we've already talked about these. You get these ideas of new Jerusalems in the apocalyptic literature, Ezekiel and Revelation, Hebrew Bible and Christian New Testament. Uh, you get this entire uh, story of a reconstruction of this new Jerusalem, very detailed, just like you would find in Exodus chapter 21 uh, through... 30, there's this long detail of how I want the Ark of the Covenant to look and how I want the tabernacle to look. And you get the same kind of thing in Ezekiel, talking about a new Jerusalem. Same thing in Revelation 21. You get this idea of a new Jerusalem. So it's these archetypes, it's these primeval archetypes that we're going to be looking at here. In fact, here's the, here's the, here's the text here in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw what? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Does it sound like the, the Babylonian, the old Babylonian story? In Exodus, we'll read in this class how God gave the plans to Moses on Sinai or Mount Horeb, and then they took those plans, given by God, according to the story, and built the tabernacle, built the Ark of the Covenant, built the temple, things like that. Um, here, you have a different idea. In the Christian New Testament, you get this idea that the new Jerusalem will be built by God himself, and he will send it down, and it will be prepared divinely for these new people to live in. Um, we talked about constructing spaces, and you saw the prototypes, the ziggurat, things like that. Now let's look at the consecration of these spaces. We get out of 150 or 155. 50? All right, we'll end at 145, so we'll end in five minutes, okay? Um, how is sacred space consecrated? How do you do it? Well, the easiest way is to build a building on it. Okay. So one of the things we have today is uh, King Herod actually took the temple. There was a temple, we'll, we'll talk about this later. There was a temple built by Solomon, this is the Temple of Solomon, Temple of David. Um, this is about 1960 BCE. That temple was destroyed in 586 by who? The Babylonians. The Babylonians came in and knocked it down, took the Jews into exile. The Persians beat the, beat the um, 
the Babylonians and said, uh, why don't you guys go home? Literally, they, it, it, the Bible portrays it as, uh, in fact, the Bible even calls the king of Persia a Messiah because he does something good for the Jews. And he says, why don't you guys get out of here because you're not from here? And so he says, here's some money. Go back and rebuild your temple. So they come back and rebuild the temple. This is called the second temple. The first one was destroyed by the Babylonians. And that second temple existed all the way down to the time of King Herod. King Herod is a very paranoid, very egotistical guy. He takes apart the temple and doubles its size and rebuilds it, including this massive retaining wall. The temple used to sit right here where the Dome of the Rock is today, but he built this massive retaining wall around it and then rebuilt the temple on top of it until the Jewish revolt of 70. The Romans came in and put down the Jewish revolt and knocked down Herod's temple, the second temple. Knocked it down, and the temple hasn't been rebuilt since. And, and in this class, we'll talk more about In the meantime, uh, Abdul Malik builds this uh, uh, building here called the Dome of the Rock. We'll spend hours and hours talking about it later. But the idea is this space this rock here remained sacred. So there was a temple there, you knock it down, why don't we go over here and build a new temple? No, 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 no. We've got to maintain the Oxus Mundi. We've got to maintain the sacred space. Second temple gets knocked down. New, new faith comes in, Christians, and then another new faith comes in, the Muslims. Islam comes in and says, we still think that space is sacred. We're a different faith, but we still think it's sacred. So they built the Dome of the Rock. So you'll see as religions come and go, spaces remain sacred. It's why you still don't go walking to the cemetery unless you're going to watch a movie. Yeah. It's, it's why you still don't go traveling through, even ancient, uh, you know, to this day, uh, you go to uh, Europe and you walk through old ruins of castles and things. It's still, it's still a church, right? Even though it's a tourist place, they're selling it. It's still a church. There's still this this idea of humility before. Uh, before 2000, I, got to, I, I had the chance to go into the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They won't, let, um, they won't let people that look like me go in there anymore. I tried. Trust me, I tried. I went up in the Al-Aqsa Bar and the whole thing. They said, no, 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 you're not fooling us. Uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't let me in there. Right? I took up my shoes and be very dumb. Um, but I, got, I had a chance to go in there. And you're very respectful. You take off your shoes, you walk in, and you're just overwhelmed by the sense of history, by the sense of reverence. Millions and millions of people throughout history have considered this space holy. The same with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the same with the Roman Rock, the same with this area right here, the Western Wall. I'll, I'll end with this today. The Western Wall is not the wall of the Temple. It's the wall of the Temple Mount. Okay? This is not the Temple. This is the Temple Mount that Herod the Great built. The Western Wall, once this Temple here was destroyed, Jews wouldn't go up there anymore. Why? The story is, they're not sure, even though they're pretty sure the temple was there, they're not sure where the Holy of Holies was, and Jews aren't supposed, only the high priest is supposed to go to the Holy of Holies. So to just in case, just to make sure that you don't accidentally step where the Holy of Holies was, no Jew goes up on top there. At least they're not supposed to. And when um, Ariel Sharon went up there, it caused a furor, both on Orthodox Jews, but also with Palestinians, because that's kind of their area up here. This is the Muslim area on top, and the Jewish area is here. Basically, the piece of wall closest to where the temple used to be without going up on top of the temple. The western wall is the wall, of, is a retaining wall, not the temple. We'll pick up here on Tuesday. Thank you, guys.